Good morning, friends. Good to be with you today. You know, it, it's normal for us to crave attention, isn't it? You think about children who crave attention from their parents, and then later on in life, the roles reverse, and parents seek out the attention of their kids. If you're a worker, you crave the attention of your supervisor in the office. You want them to know and to notice what you're doing, what you're a part of. A wife, trust me, wants your undivided attention, husbands. I've learned that. But there are some forms of attention that kind of go beyond what's normal. I congratulate you all. Thank you for being here on a national holiday of Super Bowl Sunday. You can bet that today it would not be surprising if somebody who paid a lot of money for a ticket decides that watching the game is not enough and they jump off down onto the field and run around just for the sake of getting attention. Advertisers will pay a lot of money to try to get all of our attention if we're watching. The estimates I think that I heard are around $7 million for a 30-second spot today. It's a lot of money. And some research recently has shown that most of us only pay attention to about six and a half seconds of any commercial we see. Getting attention is big business. But there's one correlation that I've noticed between attention and the level of desperation that we feel in our lives. The more desperate we are, the more dire our circumstances, the more we seek out other people's attention. The attention of the, the people who can help us. And sometimes the the options in front of us are very narrow. We actually can only get help for our specific problem from a very narrow slice of the population. This morning, we're going to be introduced to two people. They're probably familiar to us if you grew up in the church and are familiar with God's word, but there are two people we are going to encounter who were desperate for attention. They were in situations where they were crying out for help in various ways, but both of them needed the attention of Jesus. So I'd like to invite you to turn this morning to Luke chapter 18. We're going to be starting off in verse 31, but we're going to meet two people who were desperate for attention in different ways. One more explicitly, but both of them were desperate for Jesus's help. Now, if you've been with us, then you know we've been in this series out of the book of Luke for a number of weeks now, and this morning we're just continuing on, but every week we're getting closer to Jerusalem, and this morning we're getting really close to Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples are on the way, and as they're on the way, they're going to pass through a town called Jericho. Jesus, though, is crystal clear about what is in front of him. If you turn to Verse 31 of chapter 18, this is what the text tells us. And taking the 12, the 12 disciples, Jesus said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise." If you kept reading, we don't have it on the screen, but if you kept reading, you would see that the disciples didn't understand. 
It was hidden from them. They didn't grasp what Jesus was talking about. But in spite of their ignorance, Jesus is crystal clear about what's in front of them, about what his purpose is, about what his destination is. And he heads off into that, that territory that he knows that his whole life's purpose is about. He's clear about that, but he's also crystal clear about his identity. You see that word in there, the son of man. That's a title going back to the Old Testament. It refers to this coming king, this Messiah figure who would deliver, who would relieve God's people. And Jesus knows that that's who he is. So in spite of the disciples' ignorance, Jesus is completely clear. There's no ambiguity in his mind about what is in front of him. And now he's heading closer to Jerusalem. But on the way, he's about to meet a man who's desperate. Okay, let's pick up that story beginning in verse 35. It says, as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Okay, let's just pause here. Show me a blind man and I'll show you a man who is desperate. A blind man isn't somebody who's just without sight, but a blind man is somebody who is without resources. A blind man is without options. He's without status socially. That's why he's reduced to the role of being a beggar sitting by the road. He's completely reliant on other people to provide for his well-being. Jericho was probably not the worst place you could be if you were a beggar. Jericho happened to sit right along a major roadway where people would travel through. And so the blind man naturally would take the opportunity to try to get those people's attention, to try to help him in his own situation in his life. But today, he can notice that something out of the ordinary is going on. He can hear with his ears that a crowd is forming. And he inquires about it. What's going on? And he's told, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus from Nazareth is coming by. Word about Jesus had gotten out. It was in the area. They had heard about his miracles, perhaps, his great teaching. But the ironic thing about this blind man is that he's able to see something that a lot of seeing people are blind to. This blind man is able to know that this isn't just Jesus from Nazareth. This is the son of David. The son of David is another title, like son of man, that has to do with the fact that Jesus is this king. That Jesus is somebody the prophets in the Old Testament spoke about. Jesus is the one who would redeem his people. And so the blind man cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And as he does that, he expresses this great truth about Jesus' true identity, about who he really is. And as he cries out, he knows that he's entirely reliant on Jesus to help him. This blind man has learned the hard way that he has no resources to pull himself up. He has no resources to try to be self-reliant. 
But as a beggar, he knows that all he needs, all he has in front of him is God's mercy. So he cries out for God's mercy to meet the needs that he has in his life. It says, then those who were in front, in front of this crowd, they rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. See, one thing that people who are not in desperate situations sometimes do, they try to minimize the desperation of other people. That's what we see going on in this crowd, are responding, hey, keep it down. This is Jesus. He's, he's busy. He's on his way to Jerusalem. Stop bothering him. You'll be fine, okay? Just go about your begging. But he, he doesn't take that as an answer. And he cries out even more. Think, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It's a great display of faith. It's a great act that should remind us of some things that we've heard in recent weeks. In fact, if you were here last week, Pastor Tom took us through a couple of different parables that Jesus spoke just a chapter earlier, actually in this chapter, the, the beginning part of chapter 18. As we hear this blind man who's told to shut up by the crowd, we might be reminded of a widow who was also told to keep it down to a judge who neither feared God nor respected men. But yet she was persistent in crying out to God, knowing that only God could actually help her. In the case of the parable, it's, it's the judge who can help her. But the relationship, the comparison is, if this unrighteous judge would do something like that, how much more Will our Father in heaven do that for us? The blind man is displaying that, putting that kind of persistence into action. We might also think from the very words that are being spoken by him, have mercy on me. But that reminds us as well as of the comparison between the Pharisee and the tax collector as they're praying. Remember that? The, the Pharisee is the one who's congratulating himself for being so awesome. Meanwhile, the tax collector can only beat himself and say, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. The tax collector is displaying the kind of attitude that actually is honoring to God. And speaking of tax collectors, that's the other person who Jesus meets as he goes into Jericho. We're going to skip down now to chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. And here's what we read about that. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. So again, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's passing through Jericho to get there. Zacchaeus, being a tax collector, also has an opportunity in front of him by being in Jericho. As a city that so many would travel through, it was a great place to stop people and ask them to pay up their taxes. Zacchaeus would take care of that. We've talked in many, many times um, during this series about a tax collector. 
But in case you haven't been there for that, let me just say a tax collector is like the scum of the earth. A tax collector is somebody who is sold out. He's sold out to the Roman authorities to collect taxes from his own people, the Jewish people. And he's done that for one sole purpose, to get rich. The tax collector has set aside his friends, his family, in order to be loyal to Rome, in order to line his own pockets. Because the money that you collect from everyone, some of that would go to Rome, but some of it would come home as well. This tax collector was not just a scumbag, but he was the chief scumbag. He was the chief tax collector. Congratulations on that. So he would collect these taxes in Jericho. And as he does that, it says simply that he is rich. Being rich in our own world can attract people's attention in a positive way. We might be intrigued by the kind of lives that the rich live. We might be intrigued by the the home that they have, by the kind of cars that they drive, by the vacations they take. We're curious. Sometimes we even admire them simply for being rich. Not so in Jesus's day. In Jesus's day, the vast majority of the population is dirt poor. And because of that, the very wealthy minority was often a minority of people who took advantage of the majority. They took advantage of them, trying to suppress them and keep them in their poverty so that they could be supported in their wealth. When you said somebody was rich back in their day, that was not a compliment. That was something that would often elicit scorn in other people's eyes. So Zacchaeus fits that bill. Zacchaeus is somebody who is not looked upon favorably. But it says here that he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the fact that he was so small in stature, he ran ahead and climbed up into the sycamore tree. So if we just compare these two men, we might draw out several different characteristics. Now, we've worked really hard. We consulted with some of the finest graphic illustrators in order to come up with this next slide. And you can go ahead and put that. So... This is the blind beggar, and this is Zacchaeus. I think Zacchaeus is not to scale. He should be a little bit shorter. But if you want to compare these two men, here's what you see. The blind beggar has nothing and is dismissed socially because he has nothing. He is poor and he's helpless. Zacchaeus, on the other hand, has everything. But he has everything and is despised socially because of the fact that he is a tax collector. He is rich and he is hopeless because he has sold himself out to the Roman government. In both cases of these gentlemen, we might say that they are both invisible. If you saw the the blind beggar on the road, you may not even notice him. If you saw Zacchaeus coming down the road, you would do all that you could to not make eye contact with him and maybe even turn around and go the other direction. Both of them are socially ostracized. They're isolated. They're invisible. That's the reality that both of these gentlemen face. 
But here's the thing about Jesus. He's the one who takes notice of the invisible. That's who Jesus is. It's ironic here that Zacchaeus is somebody who is so small in stature because he is somebody who many others would look down upon, not only literally, but figuratively. Because of his occupation, he would be looked down upon. But Jesus looks at the invisible. That's that's who he is. We go back up to chapter 18, verse 40. We get back to the text, and it says that Jesus stopped and commanded this man to be brought to him. They stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he said, Jesus said to the man, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. Of course, that's what he would ask for. He's the blind beggar. We might wonder, though, why did Jesus ask him what he wanted? Wasn't it obvious? I don't know for sure, but I just wonder if this is a man who had to even be brought to Jesus. He couldn't even come on his own. It's a man who's used to having other people in his life call the shots. But Jesus does him the dignity of asking him, hey, what do you want me to do for you? What if Jesus asked you that question? How would you respond? Hey, what do you want me to do for you? What an incredible question. What an amazing opportunity this this man is being asked. This might remind us of the fact that back in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in the synagogue, and he's handed the scroll of Isaiah. And there... He uses the words of Isaiah to express his own mission and purpose in life. And he says these famous words from Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what Jesus does. This is who Jesus is. The one who releases captives, gives sight to the blind, and that's exactly what he's asking this man. What do you want me to do for you? Of course he's going to say, I want to see. See, Jesus is not just the God who who takes notice, but he's the God who takes action. That's what we see happening here in this conversation. But if we go down to Zacchaeus' story, then in verse 5 of chapter 19, we read, And when Jesus came to the place where Zacchaeus was, where he had climbed up into the tree, he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now just imagine that scene. There's a crowd. Zacchaeus had to run ahead of the crowd in order to get ahead so that he would be able to have time to climb up into the tree. There are a lot of people around in the street. There are a lot of people around in the city. But Jesus stops and notices the most unlikely figure, probably partially obscured by the branches up in the tree that he climbed up into. And Jesus takes notice and he stops. He says, come down, I must stay at your house today. 
Jesus takes action. He doesn't just take notice. And by doing that, he does something incredibly scandalous. We read about that. As Zacchaeus hurries and comes down, and they receive each other, but Zacchaeus receives Jesus. Jesus receives him joyfully. And when they saw it, the people around, they all grumbled. They said this, he's gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. In Jesus' day, to have a meal together, to stay at somebody's house, was to form a social bond with that person. You were associating yourself with their situation. There was an expectation, in fact, if you received a gift from somebody that you would give a gift in return. So this isn't just a one-time transaction. This is something where you would say, yeah, I think we should be friends. I think we should continue this relationship. And it's completely scandalous because of who Zacchaeus is, because of how despised he is. There's one New Testament commentator, and I'm John Nolan, who writes about this. And he says, to accept the hospitality of a man whose wealth is ill-gotten is to become a partner with him in his crimes. I was with a group of pastors recently, and we were, we were going out to dinner because we were out of town, out of the area. And one of the pastors entered into a conversation with some of the locals in the area. And I was just thinking, man, that, that's so awesome. I wish I did that more. But as he was getting to know this couple, he found out a little bit about their story. And, and it included just terrible things. Like, for example, um, there was sexual abuse that one of them had experienced in a religious school that they had grown up in. What a tragedy. There was abortion as a part of their story as well. And I just, I couldn't help but think, Man, these are people who probably feel like they're disqualified in some way. People who feel like because of what they've done, they are isolated now from Jesus, from the church. What a tragedy that feeling is for everyone who has it. Because Jesus isn't just willing to become a partner where he comes over and associates with us, but Jesus delights in hanging out with people who are broken. Jesus delights in hanging out with and connecting with people who have experienced great pain, who have made mistakes in their lives. This is a God who loves the people who are seeking only for mercy because that's all they have left. Our God delights in those people who are at the end of their rope with no other recourse. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the prayer that Jesus answers, that he responds to. That's the prayer that gets his attention. This isn't a God who just takes notice of people who are invisible to the rest of us, but this is a God who takes action on their behalf. He notices them. He takes action for those who are unworthy, who are undeserving. And we see it with the, with the beggar. Let's go back up to that story. If you go back up to chapter 18, verse 43, 
right after Jesus said to him, recover your, your sight because your faith has made you well. It says, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Of course they did, because in the actions and the words of Jesus, they see things happen that only God can accomplish. Every time Jesus speaks, every time he acts, God is glorified because it's the very power of God at work. It's the display of the presence of God among us. Whenever Jesus acts, there's glorification and praise to God. If we look down at Zacchaeus, we see something also remarkable. It's easy to think that the blind man got a more spectacular transformation here. He was blind and now he can see. But let's look and see what happens with Zacchaeus. It says here in our text, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of the goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Again, it's easy to think like, oh, wow, that's, that's nice. That's a good thing that happened to him. But man, the blind man, that's incredible. But we should remember Zacchaeus is a man who had made all of his life about the accumulation of wealth. He was willing to sacrifice everything else that he had in order to gain more for himself. That kind of self-absorption and self-focus is not easily overcome. In fact, it is a supernatural work of God whenever it does. And Zacchaeus just starts off by saying, half of everything I have, I'm giving it all away. Instead of clutching and clinging to my wealth, I'm holding it with open hands. And if I've done wrong to anybody, and as a chief tax collector, you can bet he's done wrong to people, he's going to repay it four times over. That's above and beyond any kind of requirement. Zacchaeus has had his heart completely redirected by the very presence of Jesus. Why would Jesus do this? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Why would he stop? Why would he give his attention to this blind beggar? Why would he give his attention to this unworthy tax collector? Verse 10 tells us, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's it. That's the answer. Why would Jesus do this? Because this is his very mission. This is his heart. He came to seek and to save the lost. As the son of man, the son of David, the king, Messiah, Jesus is the king who came to seek and to save the lost. Who are the lost? The lost are those who do not yet trust in Jesus to save them from their sins. That's who the lost are. But Jesus came to seek them out like a shepherd looking for a lost sheep, like a woman looking for a lost coin, like a father who runs to embrace his wayward son who's coming back home. That's who Jesus is. He seeks after those who are desperate, not deserving. 
Jesus goes after the ones who are at the end of their rope in need of God's mercy because it's all they have. It's the only option left. And he delights in seeking after them. And he delights in saving them. He delights in transforming them. The kind of transformation that can only be expressed through the miracle of a blind man now being able to see and of a chief tax collector who's now the most generous man in the city. That's what our God specializes in. For all of us in this room who have experienced the grace of this one who has sought after and saved us, my hope is that we would have a heart of generosity, gratitude, towards this God who has done so much for us. None of us stands before the Lord on our own merits. We can only stand because of his mercy. My hope is that we would be a people who, like Jesus, would seek after the lost, that we would clearly convey the gospel to the people we meet to allow this great God of ours to save and to transform their lives like he did for this blind beggar and this tax collector. This is the God who delights in transforming because he is the God who seeks and saves the lost. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the fact that your word reminds us of things maybe we have heard dozens of times, but Lord, I pray that it would be fresh for us this morning. God, I pray for a fresh work of gratitude in our hearts so that we would just be reminded of everything that you have given us, Lord, that we would not just grow complacent or ungrateful for those things, Lord, but that we would be people whose hearts are fresh and soft over the fact that you have given so much. Lord, may we be the kind of people who, by the power of your spirit at work in us, also go out to seek so that you might save the lost, Lord. Thank you for this heart that's on display in these two different accounts. And Lord, thank you that you are the God who's going to Jerusalem, the God who would go to the cross to die for us so that we can have true life. Lord, Thank you for your awesome work in our lives. May we be grateful as your people. In Jesus' name, amen.